Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Joywell Conversations. I'm your host, Chisara Asamoga, and on today's show, we're bringing in one of my good friends, Dr. Oni Blackstock. Dr. Oni B and I met as fellows at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program at Yale University some years ago, and since then, I've been following what this woman is doing, and she is making waves, y'all. So I thought it would be nice to bring her to the joy well. Dr. Oni B is a primary care HIV doctor and researcher. She was the former assistant commissioner for New York City's Health Department Bureau of HIV AIDS, where she led New York City's response to ending the HIV AIDS epidemic. She's a Brooklyn native with degrees from Harvard College and Harvard University School of Medicine. And you might have even seen her alongside her twin sister online and on TV discussing the response to the corona pandemic and its impact on non-white communities, a.k.a. us. So now with that, let's enter into the joy well for some conversation with the Dr. Oni B. Dr. Oni Blackstock, welcome to the joy well conversations. How are you? Thank you, Dr. Samuga. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I was able to like squeeze a bike ride in Central Park this morning. So that was really exhilarating. It was tough. It was like harder than it usually is getting around. No, I understand. But I made it and those the downhills are the best part. Yes, girl, the downhills. I want to do a bike ride in Central Park. The other day I um, did a scooter. I borrowed a friend's scooter. And I just went all the way down the west side into Brooklyn, all the way to Coney Island. Yeah, I went far. Wow. Yeah. Because awesome. I just, I wanted to get on wheels. And so, you know, it was, it was yeah. great. I'm glad that he let me borrow it because otherwise I would have just been inside my room. But with a mask, but have, feeling the air, like, especially like you were saying, going downhill. That's so brave of you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, it was brave, actually. It was because... <laughs> I have not been on a scooter ever. I don't think like skateboards, yes, rollerblades, bicycles, but as an electronic scooter. So like it's yeah, that's when we're standing up. Like yeah, this. yeah. It's Those scary. look kind of scary. Yes. So I'm, yeah, I'm in a bit. I'm in awe. It was very crazy. <laughs> you know, remember those segways? Yes. Yeah, I, I think those are scary, vicious even. I've never been on one, but as yes. soon as I got on the scooter, I was thinking of that. I was like, oh my God, am I going to die? Am I going to fall? Because it's not like you could be on the sidewalk or even on the street. You're like in the middle and it's like yeah. a bike lane. Not really, it's, uh, but I made it. Look, I made okay, it. Okay, good. And you had a helmet on. Yeah, of course. Okay, good. Okay, good. Of course. Yes, I know. <laughs> As a pediatrician, yeah. Of course. Although I saw many people on bicycles, rollerblades and whatnot without. Yeah which just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. Right, we know a mind is a terrible thing to waste. There's a reason. Totally, totally. (laughs) So, you know, when I was thinking about who I wanted to have talking to us about joy, I really, I gravitated towards you, not only because of the kind of posts or tweets you have online on Twitter, but also your spirit, your energy. And the work that you have done and the communities that you have done it with, just, it it, it speaks to me. And I think your voice is an important voice for my listeners, anybody who's listening to hear, especially when it comes to how you, how you live a life of joy in the midst of being in this sort of climate and being a black woman, you know what I'm saying? And a professional black woman at that, 
So we're in spaces constantly that I feel are not where we don't see ourselves, right? What has that been like for you in your trajectory and in, in, in your career path? So I, I would have to say just full disclosure that mm-hmm. I am very much being deliberate and intentional about finding those moments of joy yeah. and wanting yeah. to cultivate more moments and instances of joy yes. happening. Um, and so I think about the times when I'm most joyous or most happy. And mm-hmm. that is when I feel like I'm doing something that's like in alignment with my soul. Yeah. Um, so it could be something like, um, like I was saying, biking this morning, yes. and going down the hill and just being like, and feeling like I've accomplished this uphill. I got, I, right. I like fought to get to the top and here I am sort of enjoying that victory. Right. And then just sort of being one, and then just being like that interconnectedness with nature too, mm-hmm. with the wind, yes. with the trees. And that whole like interconnectedness also I think about, I spent the weekend, I literally for this weekend, I didn't have too much to do, but I made mm-hmm. sure that I scheduled calls with people I really care about. So one day wow. I spoke with one of my mentors for like three hours. Nice. And the next day I spoke with one of my best friends for like two hours. But just like that, and I, those are really for me, very joyous experiences because yeah. they're people I really care and love, love. And we were having a t- time to connect, to share, yeah. to listen to one another, to support. So yeah. just trying to like be more purposeful and, and finding, mm-hmm. finding those moments is really important. Between you and I and everybody that's listening, yes. I really just want to take off my shoes and walk in the grass. Like I, li- because for me, that's very grounding. My mom has grass in her backyard in LA and I'm like, oh my God, if I could just put my feet on some grass, there are too many dogs here. So <laughs> <laughs> I know it's too risky. <laughs> but that connection to nature is so important. And, and we have the luxury living here of having parks that we can go to, you know? Um, you're in Brooklyn, right? I'm actually in Harlem, and, and so I'm actually near Morningside Park and Central Park. And it's funny when I when I decided to live here, I wasn't I was sort of looking for what I could afford. I wasn't looking in yeah. what was sort of convenient to get to work. Right. And, but, the, but the best the best gift has been that we that to have these two huge parks nearby. And it's interesting during the pandemic, in particular, when mm-hmm. when it was really like shelter in place, I yes. just had like a hunger. I was like to go out, but go out to take a walk every. I take a yes. evening walks almost every day, and when my son's with me. He goes on his bike, I'll walk with him, but we're almost outside every day. Girl, I'm with you. I'm with you. In fact, so I'm in Washington Heights, right? I live across the street from Highbridge Park. And if I go 15 minutes to my to the west, Fort Tryon Park. And like that's that has saved me. Yes. Yes. That is literally saved. That is my joy. <laughs> Like early in the morning, late at night, I get, I get you. Like even in the middle of the day, today I went, you know, like I was just like, let me go for a walk because I just need to be outside. Even with the mask on, it's just, mm-hmm. there's something about that that's very healing. I think, especially during the pandemic and we're sheltering in place, I think a lot of times we felt like our own experience was like singular and unique mm-hmm. in terms of how we're feeling. Um, and so I think like just getting out and like reconnecting with yeah. nature also allows us to realize like we're not, we're not the only ones going through what we're going through and that we're and that we are actually connected to other people right to the earth to right. nature um right. and so i think that was just like a for me an important reminder to have yeah, that we're humans and this is not a normal time at no. all you know just not at all there's really nothing normal about this time at all and as crazy as this may seem That's probably a good thing because where we were before and where we are today better not be where we are tomorrow.
I'm hoping that every day there's some improvement. Oni and I have practiced medicine, conducted research on and studied the intimate workings of our healthcare system. We have been both practitioners and advocates for our health. But the data regarding how we are treated in these healthcare systems and how well we fare in our healthcare system are unacceptable. Whether it's infant mortality, maternal mortality, pain management, or simply being heard, our healthcare system as a whole is doing us much harm. So I had to ask her, what needs to happen now? What can we be doing to change our healthcare system so it is more responsive to us and not reacting against us? As Black women, when you enter into the healthcare system, you're, you, you experience something that is just, it's, it's, it's the antithesis of first do no harm. And I know you've done a lot of work in health equity. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about not only the experience that many of us, I know I'm not the only one, is having, but what can we be doing in the healthcare system to make things better? And what can we as women advocate for ourselves so that when we enter into these spaces, we are not, we are not faced with that crazy. We can advocate for ourselves and do better. That's an excellent question. I think, you know, just being a patient in general, it's probably, mm -hmm. I always think of it as like a very vulnerable position to be yeah. in. I think yeah. outside of like being incarcerated, mm -hmm. like just in terms of being some asymmetry of, of information and the power yeah. differential and all of that. And we know that medicine um, historically is very hierarchical. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and, and this, you know, it's interesting. I'm actually preparing for a presentation. So I was reading, you know, up on that medical apartheid yeah. by um, Harriet um, Washington. Yes. Um, and just thinking about just sort of the history, you know, so this, this medical mistrust, these challenges that we have, you know, navigating this very um, racist and sexist, mm -hmm. you know, healthcare system. And, and just the origins of that, like, you know, <laughs> starting from the role of physicians on um, ships of in, with enslaved people, like their, mm -hmm. goal, their, their job was to keep black people alive at any cost. Um, and, and some of what was done was, was, was torture and horrible. Um, right. And then thinking about the role that physicians played when enslaved black people were on the, the selling block to check like, the soundness of black people. And then, wow. I mean, I think what was ho absolutely horrible is all the medical experimentation that happened so much yes. that was learned yeah. in medical schools, particularly I think a lot of the Southern medical schools, Northern medical schools were learned on black bodies. Mm experimentation, um, you know, without anesthesia, where people are fully conscious, just thinking about all the torture and then how that has led us to where we are today. So they're like the historic and also the current realities of all of it. Um, I, I would say, I mean, part of me thinks about this, um, what is it like, you can't unbake the cake, like the cake yes. is made. Yes, <laughs> the cake feels yes. like it's made. Yeah. You kind of like have to bake a new cake in some ways. Um, which is really challenging <clears throat> to do, um, but I think that there are things that we can we can begin to do. And I think I feel like they're kind of like at two levels. And I mm -hmm. think about the work that I did at the New York City Health Department mm -hmm. around um, racial equity and health equity. Um, and one of them is that when we think about um, like just white white folks who are part yes. of these systems, right, right, really, right, the importance of them having space to reckon with and to grieve and to mourn um, the role that they've played in upholding whiteness. 
um, and, and working through that. So at the health department, um, in the Bureau of HIV, we created, um, and other bureaus as well, affinity spaces um, for our, our white staff. Um, I think they named it um, White Staff Showing Up for Racial Equity. Um, but it really was an opportunity for white staff to really grapple with the ways in which they're complicit. In so wait, pa pause for just one second. You guys actually had a space. Yes. For where they could sit down with this whiteness ideology, their guilt, and and mourn the loss that they are going to have as a result of things yes. changing. Right, and, they, and we had white staff ask us for that because I actually had um, my leadership team and some of our senior managers take Undoing Racism. Right. Um, that's through the People's Institute for Survival right. and Beyond out of New Orleans. Um, and, and what came out of that was from our white staff was a need to like have kind of like a white only spaces, which is fine to talk about, to talk about, you know, the trauma that they inflict on other people, <laughs> yes. trauma, you know, but also the trauma, it's also traumatic for white people too. It's traumatic to not um, come to grips with the impact yes. they have on other people yes. and, to, and, yes. the, and their compl complicity with the system. And so um, we actually, there was a white uh, facilitator. So the way that Undoing Racism usually happens that they have three facilitators and usually at least one of them is white. So mm -hmm. there was a white woman who was like amazing. She wow. called herself an anti-racist racist. Cause she's basically as a white person, she's part of the system. And so therefore she's racist, mm -hmm. but she's working to be anti-racist, but she right. knows that because it's baked into her, she'll probably never be fully anti-racist. Right. Anyway, right. we had her come in and lead the, lead the group for about six months, was it met monthly. And then she trained three of our, white staff to then take it over. And so it's continuing on. We're also creating spaces for, you know, our, our black staff, um, you know, so they can, you know, black staff, Latino staff, um, Asian staff, so they can also, um, you know, sort of grapple with, you know, the trauma that is inflicted on them and have a space where they feel supported. So I, I really think spaces like that are really important and have to happen in and many different work environments because you can you can have the systemic change, but if people don't understand their role in contributing right. to what we're seeing, right. then nothing's going to change. So I think many of these healthcare systems they're looking for a quick fix, like yes. maybe a one, a one day training, right. um, an implicit bias. But like anti racist work, it's like an ongoing process of like self interrogating, of sitting with yourself, of sitting exactly. with others talking, you know, uh, you know, all of uh, discussing all of this is, is really needed. And so it's not a one time training, it's going to be like a longitudinal thing. So I think there has to be space for that type of sort of like individual level yes. work that white folk need to do. True. And then there need to be like, obviously systemic, sort of more meaningful systemic changes you know, happen as part of, of the healthcare system. And I think there are many different ways to do this. Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking about at the health department, one thing that we uh, that helped us is working with an organization called Race Forward to use um, mm -hmm. racial equity assessment tools. So they're tools right. that basically ask like maybe four or five pertinent questions at um, these things at points in decision making called choice points, and they're points mm -hmm. at which whatever the decision is can have huge ramifications right, for people right, right. in terms of equity. And so it just allows you to to as you're going through your and it could be a daily choice point, it could be something that happens once a year, but allows you to think about, you know, who's at the table when this is going to be made, who is going to be impacted most by this, you know, well, how, do, how are we um, thinking about racial justice when we're making this decision? So it just allows, instead of um, 
you know, recyclity being, it's something that's sort of brought to the fore and made explicit. Right, made explicit and and not like you were saying, not just some one-off, not something that you're just, you know, like, oh, if we do it for a day or if we do it for a moment, we have checked off all of the boxes. Yes. It's like, it's going, it's it's more in depth. It's more, it's looking yes. deeper. It's not surface. You know? Right. Wow. Yeah, and it's integrating and it's like using these and, and it's because white supremacy culture, like part of it, there's an, you know, one of the characteristics that, um, like Tema Okun and mm -hmm. I forgot the other researcher person who worked on this characteristics of white supremacy culture, mm -hmm. they talk about urgency. So urgency mm -hmm. is a, a, a very a cardinal feature of white supremacy culture. And it's all about getting stuff done as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, but if we're gonna think about making a world that is equitable, we have to slow down, right? And we have to be thoughtful. <laughs> Right. Yes. About, about all of our, the decisions that we're making. But that's like counter to this culture that we're all so counter. We breathe in it. Yes. We're all bathed yes. in it. It's like yes. the norm. When someone says this is white supremacy culture, you're like, no, that's just like work culture. You know, but it comes from somewhere. It comes from somewhere. So, right. So, wow. so, so it's like these tools, um, I think, can also allow people to slow, slow down. Yes. And think. <laughs> I love that. One of um, a previous uh, Joywell conversation I had, we were talking about just that um, slowing down and stillness at the individual level. But this is also, you're talking about societal, you're talking about institutions. Slow the F down. Basically. <laughs> and consider and think through. Like, I, I mean, racism didn't happen overnight. You know, well, I mean, <laughs> but it, it, it was a process and then systems were built we're built on that to help perpetuate and we're here some hundreds of years later yes it's not going to go away in in one night and you're not just going to fix it like okay we've cut off the head like voting out voting out number 45 is is crucial right but that's not going to change everything underneath because it's right. like you said, it's so baked in totally and i think um I also follow Sonia, Sonia Renee Taylor on Instagram. I don't know if you follow her, but no. she's, amazing. she's amazing. I would recommend following okay. Sonia Renee Taylor. But she was, I was just looking at one of her Instagram videos the other day and she basically was like, totally everyone go out and vote, but like just know that um, we're not dealing with like a fair and equitable system. Thank so you. like all the, you know, all these obstructionists, you know, the USPS, you know, all these things are happening to suppress the vote. So it's possible that everyone goes out, they try to vote, but then because of all these machinations and obstacles that are being put in the way. Exactly. And, and just to say that if Trump ends up winning, it won't be because people didn't come out to vote. Yeah. <laughs> it's because 100. all of these obstacles and hurdles to prevent people from voting. And what she said is um, she is focusing her energy on creating the community that she is going to need to survive. Yes! yes. Um, you know, if Trump right. gets elected again, but even if he doesn't too, right? There's, still, I mean, the, the normal before him was problematic as well. Exactly. Ex oh my God, I'm jumping up and down because literally just had this text, like text thread with some of my friends about that. Like I'm focusing my energy on not only community that I can build for myself mm -hmm. now, but beyond, because that's what's gonna save us. I mean, there's yes. a lot of other stuff that needs to happen, but that is so key, especially so key. for us women, so key. Yeah. 
No, it's great. And, and you came up with it on your own. I was listening to Sonia Renee. That's what she said. But I was like, that makes so much sense. That's awesome. Yeah, we, all, we, we, need, we that's what we need to be doing, like, in parallel. Like, great. She was like, yeah, I'm not saying don't go out and vote. She's like, no, exactly. go, do whatever. But, like, also know that you need to be, she's like, I advise all of you to do the same yes. to create the community of care that you're going to need. Yes, exactly. Ex Ooh, I felt that. I was literally jumping in my seat when she said that because I was like, what? We were just having this conversation. It doesn't matter who wins. We still need to be doing the work. And that is 100% true. By the time you are listening to this, we might already know who the president is, but we still have work to do. We still have work to do for ourselves. Just because this segment of the journey is over doesn't mean the journey is over. We still need to set our boundaries. We still need to honor our boundaries. We still need to focus on being our best selves for ourselves so that we can be our best when we're out in the community, when we were working and advocating for our rights. And we have to stay mindful, protect ourselves, protect each other, and advocate for our voices to be heard. There's that um, diagram where it's like, the circle with things you can control and then like yes. all the things out of it, things you can't control. Yeah. Like it's among those things that we can, you know, sure we want to like to do things, but it's also right. like, what do we have, what do we have control over? Exactly. Um, and so we feel less helpless, you know, yeah. if we are able to identify those things that we can, we can do. In your work, where have the moments of joy been for you? I really enjoy when I'm not rushed and I get to sit and talk to my patients mm -hmm. and hear what's going on in their lives um, and to be there as support. The last last week, I had two of my patients really having high levels of anxiety, depression yeah. Yeah. from what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of them had lived through um, the HIV epidemic. He's mm. been HIV positive for a number of decades. And he's like, I've been through this before and I don't want to go through it again. Oh, and wow. to just sit down with him and to let him know that he was doing whatever he, you know, he was doing all the right things. He was talking about how he's trying to stay safe, how he's good to go outside. And I, I, was, I was just saying like, you know, you can, there is more freedom that you could have if you felt more comfortable with it. Like he was saying, he doesn't want to go biking. He doesn't go walking. I said, you could, there are things that you can do that are not high risk that where you can still find joy. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so just being able to, you know, be a source of information and support um, for my patients who I think, you know, many, many often they're kind of like in an echo chamber and they're not hearing like other, other sort of messages. Um, and so that's like joyful for me yeah. to be able to connect with my patients. I, I told, you know, if there's anything I miss about practicing medicine, it's those moments with patients, like where you can actually like sit, not, you don't feel rushed, but you can sit with them and be, a source of healing, honestly, for them and their experience. It's not just giving meds, but it's being present. Yes. If there's anything I wish that all doctors got training in is how to be present. Some of us know it naturally, but just to sit there, even if you only have 15 minutes, there's a way to engage with your patient yes. that lets them know you're there and yes. you're listening and yes. you can be a soundboard and you're not and, and without judgment. You know, mm -hmm. as I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm, I can speak from experience, you know, you walk in, huh, I remember as being a 17 year old and 17 or 18. And I had walked into Kaiser. Oh boy. I'm putting Kaiser on blast now. 
I'd walked into Kaiser and it was a Kaiser in Inglewood, California. So predominantly black and Latino. And I walked in there and I don't know why, but at that time, the recommendations were as soon as you hit 18, regardless of sexual activity, you needed to have a, a passport. That changed. Yes. And I, I didn't write about it, but I was so happy when it changed. Because for somebody who had never had sex before, that was a traumatic experience. The black doctor that I went, black female doctor that I went to did not believe that I hadn't slept with anybody. Oh my goodness. She didn't believe, she was like, no, you're 18 years old from Southern California and you haven't, I was like, wait, haven't you ever heard of a fundamentalist Christian before? <laughs> You know, but like she, she was dead on serious. Um, she wasn't present is the point that I'm trying to yeah. say, you know, like, and, and that's where we do harm. And that's a woman who looked like me, right? Like that's a physician who made, you know, came in with her assumptions, mm -hmm. right? About who I was just by looking at me. And, you know, I've had more experiences, um, not with uh, black physicians, but with non-black physicians, white physicians, mm -hmm. both male and female, where you present with the problem and they are so not hearing you. Yeah. So not yeah. being there. What would you tell someone who has that experience? Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. And, and just to say that, like, mm -hmm. I, you know how they say like physicians are the worst patients? Like, yeah. I'm like, if I don't have to go to the doctor, I do not go. No, why? People ask, you have a primary care doctor? I'm like, no. No, yes. <laughs> You know, I have a gynecologist go to for pap smear. Right. Um, and then it's hard enough getting in touch with her. Right. And but that's why I try to be so present. But that's why I try to be so present for my patients because I don't want my patients to have that experience. Exactly. And some of them actually have my phone number too. Most of them have my phone number actually now, just given everything that's going on. Don't right. just call me because, yeah. you know, if you need anything, just give me a yeah. call. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think we... I think there are a number, I think there are a few things that we can do to like feel more empowered in the interaction. I think, I think just to say that there is a power differential yes. yeah. and like, just like, into, into, into rec and it, there shouldn't be, but to recognize that um, there shouldn't be because patients are experts in their own personal experience. Exactly. Um, so we got experts there and then doctors are ex experts in medicine, supposedly. Um, but I think, you know, going in, going in prepared. So I try to say like, you know, if you, you know, can write down, you know, what the major issues are, what your questions are, just like have those there and be very clear about wanting to get what, seeing what you can get addressed during that visit. Mm -hmm. um, I think also like having, if people can, if people are concerned, having like a loved one or a close friend come with them too, to yeah. someone who can also like help, help advocate yeah. and like just be a check-in because some stuff happens and you're like, is that me or is right. what was that? But it's good when you have someone else who can sort of like back you up and be like, okay, like that, that was weird or that wasn't weird. So I think also just having someone with you. Um, and then I think also realizing that if you are unhappy or unsatisfied with the care that you are getting, mm. you can talk or walk with your feet yep. and, and, and see another provider um, and find another provider or get a second opinion. Um, but and then also just also, and then also, you know, if there are concerns about the interaction you had, also making obviously a complaint or saying what the issues are. But um, yeah, I think, it, but it's really tough. It's tough because I think as patients, you know, often, you know, at the other end of the, the stick and where we are, don't feel empowered very much. But I think also knowing patient bill of rights, you know, all that stuff is like right. helpful to know. Right. 
and just do, do the best you can. And I think also I talk to people about like, um, if you are looking for a provider, like going based on like a recommendation from mm -hmm. a family member or friend that can be helpful too, if someone yeah, else has a had idea. a good experience. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so true. I, you know, I used to tell folks who would ask me, you know, they're like, my kid has this, my kid has that. And I don't feel like my pediatrician is listening to me and, and X, Y, Z. And I, the first thing I'd say is if you do not feel comfortable with that provider, go to one you do. Because mm -hmm. if they cannot hear you, if, if they're judging you because you're asking a lot of questions, and I don't mind questions, ask away. Because I don't want, I don't like being in that position where mm -hmm. somebody's making me feel like just because I have questions, I'm, I'm a bad person, you know, right. to put it simply. Um, find somebody else who you vibe with. Because right. that's good. That I think is, is, um, is important in terms of your health just your health and well-being. If you're coming into the, the clinic and you're already on pins and needles, <laughs> right. you're, you know, you're setting yourself up, that blood pressure will be up, you know? Right. Totally. This is something that I wanted to ask you because you're a researcher, yes. you've been in this space. Is there something to the argument, and this argument is mine, mm -hmm. where we do away with the racial categories in in research so so this is this is what i this is what i've been thinking when i when i started my my master's degree in public health we i was looking at infant mortality and maternal mortality and running logistic regressions and whatnot and and i kept thinking why is it that white is always the control that's where the question came from mm -hmm. why is white always the control because then we can see the odds ratio and whatnot, like, okay, this, so the OR is two times that for like, you know, a black person in terms of risk or whatever. Okay, fine. But number one, why were they the control? And number two, why did we always seem to just fall back on the statement? Well, compared to whites, compared to whites, compared to whites. And I'm like, okay, but, but what is that? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, is there some, is there an argument to be made that maybe we should do away with this sort of like racial comparisons? It's probably no, it's explaining issues, sorry. but you know. No, sorry to interrupt. No, no, I, I, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I remember being at Robert Wood Johnson mm -hmm. Foundation Clinical Scholars Program and Harlan Krumholtz, who was mm -hmm. the program director, right. um, told me as I was presenting something on, um, I think I was looking at disparities between men and women and HIV outcomes. And he was like, why don't, why are, why are like men the comparison for women? And then I think I was showing race and ethnicity comparisons uh -huh. as well. Uh -huh. And he said, don't we just want everyone to have this, like, you know, whether it's a high level of quality of life or a low level of disease. And we just want that. Why are we choosing white or men? Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and like, totally appreciate that. Like totally yes. get that. But I think there's also like a recognition that because of like, white folks, um, you know, privileged status and the, the disprivileged status yeah. of black people and other people of color, um, that we do need to mm -hmm. see sort of what those, what those differences are right. and that they, and, and that they, what they represent are these mm -hmm. like structural inequities, racism that are driven mm -hmm. by racism. Um, so I do think, um, you know, depending on what the question is, it is important yeah. to yeah. like have have these comparisons. But I think we the whole thing when people talk about like race, not racism, is the risk factor. Mm -hmm. So when we say like black people are more likely to have heart disease compared with white people, but why? It's not Thank just them you. being black. 
Thank you. It's about, you know, the access to care that Black people have, the fact that many of our communities are food deserts, the fact that we are um, dealing with the chronic stress of racism that elevates our levels of, you know, elevates our inflammatory and hormones and causes, you know, more coronary heart disease. Right, right. I think you make such an important distinction. It's not it's not race as it's defined, like, you know, with skin color, whatever the, the racial categories are, it's racism. Like I, 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 being black is not my risk factor. <laughs> it's that I'm living it's like, in this country. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, that is because anywhere, technically anywhere else, wouldn't I be better off? Like how many studies have, I mean, I've read over, over the years where, you know, you're coming from another country by the time you're first, second, third generation, all of a sudden you be, you, you now look like right. people who have been here for more generations. And it's like, well, I was fine over in Nigeria. But, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's I mean, yes, Nigeria has its problems. Other countries have its problems, but I mean, I, I, I got to a certain point where I was just like, we're not asking the right questions or we're not coming to the right conclusion, which then begs this question. If there is one thing that we could do right now to transform healthcare and then all the, the social factors or social determinants that are impacting healthcare, what would that be? Or it's probably a leading question, especially for someone who <laughs> is an expert in this area, but what would one thing be, you know, to train? Okay, well, I, I think like one huge mm-hmm. change that would make a dramatic difference is if we had a single payer health care system. Voila. <laughs> like that would be like, like healthcare should not be for profit. Um, At all. Like the incentive, it's a perverse incentive. Um, and it, we are, you know, develop a de- quote unquote developed country, but compared compared to other quote unquote similar countries with similar GDP and whatnot, um, we don't have the same level of in terms of life expectancy, quality of life, um, and so ensuring that everyone, you know, just having this more collectivist yeah. perspective, that everyone has access to healthcare, I think will elevate the health of the whole entire country. I agree. Um, so I think that's like one huge change that would make a tremendous difference because we even saw with the affordable care act you know with um, the Mm. states that decided to expand medicaid yes um, that there were um i think i think we're still looking at actual health outcome data but just sort of improvements in in a number of different measures of like healthcare utilization and some like self-reported i think like health status among states that were able to expand medicaid versus those Mm. that have not i'm telling you single most important thing we could do right now. I just don't know how we're going to do it. Like, I'm hoping, you know, once Biden and Harris are in, that conversation happens. But like, this is not sustainable. This is the the way it is, right? or or maybe it is, but it's been like, I don't know. It's, it's It's been a long time coming that we should have a real conversation about how our healthcare system is, functions. And who would for because it's you have the pharmaceutical companies you have the insurance companies i cannot tell you how horrible (laughs) for lack of a better word these insurance companies can be when it comes to denying coverage denying payment you know just just so many things and it's like why do they get to be the purveyors of 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 health in this country why can't the doctors the healthcare staffs be the ones to provide the care, why is why are there all these hurt um, hoops and hurdles 
to jump through mm -hmm. just so that I can get good care. I can't move across states. Depending on what state I'm in will determine the type of healthcare I get. Mm -hmm. I can be in New York state and have better healthcare than maybe I would get in Wisconsin. Exactly. Exactly. And it's funny. Right. So, yeah, no, exactly. We have like 50 different countries. Yes. Exactly. In this country. Is it, in this one country, 50 different countries. Mm -hmm. It's 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 unreal. There is on top of on top of the healthcare that we have in this country, there's also this booming wellness industry. And I just want to hear your opinion as a black woman, what you think of the focus of the wellness industry and if there's an opportunity for us women of color to take on wellness in a way that speaks to us as opposed to what it is right now. Definitely. I mean, I think like what you're doing with the joy well, um, what I see on like Instagram, mm -hmm. some of the influencers that I follow in terms of, you know, eating healthy or yeah. just sort of, you know, our own tending to our own emotional and mental well-being. I see amazing things happening. Um, and so I, and I think, you know, our experience as black women, obviously yeah. it's heterogeneous, but there are many um, experiences that we have that, you know, are probably very, very similar in yeah. terms of having to live at the intersection of being both black and being a woman. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. I think it's great. I think people can take what they want from whatever they see and sort of cobble together what works for them. Yeah. Um, and I, didn't, and I don't, I don't feel like I have to like consume this or that. I feel like I find what makes sense to yeah. me and, you know, just use that and adopt that. Um, like I just followed, started following um, this woman, I think Jamila Reddy is her name. And she has sure. these amazing, really affirming sort of mantras, mantras and messages every day. And like literally every, every time I read it, I'm like that, oh my goodness, that resonated with me so much. And it's just like wonderful just to hear another black woman yes. saying this and being like, you're okay. Yeah. Give yourself yeah. some compassion, some yeah. grace. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it just hits different when it's from a black woman versus someone else. Cause I know that we could probably have similar experiences. Exactly, exactly. You know what actually that brings up something that um, a friend of mine just told me about today. Um, it's called Shine. Apparently it's an app the a meditation app i've never yeah. heard of it but like 90 percent of the voices are non-white so i was like oh. i just thought oh wow that's really cool that that's in this space now you know like i guess it's been around for a while but I, i'm just getting wind of it no i think it's new i just saw it it, it appeared in my instagram feed oh, yes yeah, so i think it's like two women of color yes. there's also the, there's also the liberate app which i've been listening to maybe for the past year that one's amazing that one has Lots of different people of color, um, queer people, lots mm -hmm. of amazing people who I've like heard on there and then started following on mm -hmm. like Instagram and other platforms. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, there's something that resonates, I think, differently when it's yeah. folks who have a similar background. No, it's so true. It is so true. There's something grounding about it too. It feels like community. Yes. Um, so we're going to go into our lightning round now. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> All right, first question. What is your favorite book of all time? Oh my goodness, this is a hard one. <laughs> I'm actually reading a book. This is so bad. I have to say, oh, okay. You know what? I really loved, um, he's, and I'm pronouncing his name, Kais Lehman, okay. or Keith Lehman's Heavy. It's a memoir that he wrote 
I think it came out a year or two ago. It's K-I-E-S-E. And I feel so badly for not being able to correctly pronounce his first name, but he's um, a young black man mm-hmm. who wrote about, about his life, um, you know, being raised by a single mother, about growing up fat and how he's dealt with body image, wow. about growing up as a you know young black boy who was you know, very bright, given lots of opportunities and sort of the challenges that he had navigating school. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I would say Case, K-I-E-S, I, was, I call him Keith Lehman, um, but Heavy is really great. And the great thing is he's a black man, but he also like writes from a feminist lens and perspective, which I really appreciate, which is rare. Which is very rare. Okay, now I have to check out this book because I want to yeah. see how he did that. All right, so if you have um, Spotify, I have or on my some phone. listening MP3, something that you listen to. Yes. <laughs> so what what is on your playlist now? What is the thing that you are, it's on okay. repeat? Okay. So, oh my goodness. So I, there's something recently, oh, someone had tweeted there should be a, ver- a versus of uh, that I'm singing competition between Anita Baker and Sade. So I brought back out my Sade Soldier of Love from 2010. Um, yeah, so that has been on repeat yes. <laughs> recently. Sade can do no wrong, so I've been listening to a lot of Sade. I also like um, Snow Allegra, who's someone else. Um, she's amazing. I think she's wow. um, she's Iranian, grew up in Sweden, is now in California, and wow. has like a really great R&B sound. Yes. And then this other singer, Brent Fayez, who's from Baltimore. Okay. He's this young brother who's like incredibly talented, a little bit explicit, but like really talented, yeah. amazing singer. His stuff is really original. Um, wow. So I would say the three of them. I, I love that. So now I have three more artists to look for. Yes. All right. If your life were a movie, what would the title of that movie be? Wow. I would probably be like, things aren't always what they seem. Uh, there it is. Because <laughs> I've just been, the, I mean, everyone, and I think it's the case for everybody. Right, like, we just right. have so many stories and been through so much. Right. I think a lot of people see and they're like, you just have it down. And you're yes. like, if you only knew. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let me get you behind the scenes, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. How do you define joy? What is joy to you? I think when one is able to be like their authentic self mm-hmm. and you just feel like really, and I'm, you're in sync with whatever's going on. So when I'm like, when I'm listening to Sade, I feel really joyful when I'm taking evening walk and yeah. I hear the birds chirping, I feel yeah. really joyful. Yeah. So I think just feeling really sort of in sync with mm-hmm. whatever is going on around you. Yes. Yes. Okay. Final question in the lightning round. What would you tell your younger self? about what it means to have joy, to find joy in your yeah. life. I would say that it's okay that it's okay, Oni, you'll learn with time, but that, you know, a lot of the, you know, credentials and titles and all of that, um, you know, they don't, you know, they don't have the value that, you know, society puts on them and that we, we sort of absorb that um, and that you can find like happiness without, like having all of those bona fides. Um, yeah. If you are living your life in a way that is is being true to yourself. Mm-hmm. But that's okay that you'll, it'll take time and you'll figure it out. It's okay. <laughs> you'll take time. Wait, full circle moment. If we take time, this is what yeah. we were talking about in the beginning. Like things take time. If we take our time, we do not have to rush a good thing. Totally. Like we're going to get there and, and, and we're going to get there stronger 
Yes. If we're authentic and standing and grounded and taking our time. So I want to say thank you for taking your time with me today. Ah, this, this is, this is brilliant. I, I just, you have brought joy into my life today. So thank, thank you. you for that. And you as well. <laughs> you echo the same exact way. So thank you for this conversation, for being in Yay. community. It's wonderful. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. So that ended our conversation. And uh, of course, like most conversations you have with your girlfriends, you know, you keep talking for hours on end and you realize you have learned so much and gained so much from your sisterhood. So I'd like to say be in communion and in sisterhood with each other, even if it means that we can only do it virtually. Let's take our time with each other. Let's give ourselves time. Let's be kind to ourselves. And I'll see you next week at the Joywell. You've been listening to the Joywell Conversations, a podcast of the Joywell. This episode was written by Chisara Asamoga and produced by Adana Productions. Music is by Kevin McLeod. For more information about the Joywell, you can visit us at www.livejoywell.com or on Instagram at livejoywell. Subscribe, leave a comment, rating, or review. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, love joy, be joy, live joy well. <laughs>